Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books. This week, we're talking about my favorite book. I've been out of the office for a while, visiting my son, shopping at indie bookstores while wearing a mask, hint, hint, and reading until my eyeballs fall out. So instead of doing a new interview this week, I wanted to share an episode from one of my favorite bookish podcasts, the Your Favorite Book Podcast. If that title sounds familiar, it's because I had the host, Malavika Prasid, as a guest on my podcast back in episode 29, when we talked about The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. Malavika is, quite honestly, a brilliant book critic and a thoughtful reader, not to mention a truly funny human being. Although our podcasts have a similar premise, she often takes a more critical and even academic approach to the books, and I learn something new with each episode I listen to. Most of my guests ask me my favorite book at some point in our conversation, and I never really get into it for a few different reasons. For one, my show is about my guests' opinions, not mine. For another, I have as much trouble picking a favorite as you do. My whims change every single day. Finally, everyone already knows that if I have to choose, my all-time favorite book is Howard's End, and I probably talk about it too much as it is. But when Malavika invited me onto her podcast, we did a deep dive into Howard's End. I have both highly personal and critical reasons for loving it so much, and I thought you might enjoy listening to my side of the story. E.M. Forster's classic is both my comfort read and my critical favorite, and is, in my opinion, the best book ever. Please enjoy this episode of the Your Favorite Book Podcast. I didn't expect to have any fun talking about a dusty old British novel, but sometimes connecting with a good friend and a podcast twin can really help get the laughter going. Welcome to Your Favorite Book. And today's guest is the host of the Best Book Ever podcast, Julie Strauss. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Malavika. It is a pleasure having you on today. I don't know, where do we begin? So <laughs> such a fun story for everybody listening. Um, Julie and I met in a very unconventional way. Basically, I discovered her podcast, discovered that um, the themes of her podcast are somewhat similar to mine, which I'll have her discuss, and just reached out basically saying, I come in peace. And <laughs> it's just been a lovely little podcast relationship since then. <laughs> podcast twins. That's what I keep telling everyone. I've got a podcast twin sister and I love that so much. It's really great because, you know, the whole podcast universe, nothing is ever like super, super unique, like especially in the world of book podcasts. But it's like you told me, like you can never have enough book podcasts. Right. All readers know that there's no such thing as too much book content. So <laughs> and that's certainly true. The more we read, the more content we want. Exactly. And so, Julie, can you tell us? Um, Julie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your podcast? Well, I am a writer and editor. I live in Southern California with my husband and four kids, and uh, my podcast is called 
the Best Book Ever podcast, and it's got a very similar theme as yours in that I invite people on to tell me about their favorite book, and I read their book in advance so that I can talk to them about it. And um, the driving um, ethos of the podcast has always been in my head, get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. And I intentionally don't want them to try to convince me of anything I want to know why they love it, what's interesting to them about each book. And it's just, to me, always been the way I get to know people. Um, I've never been good at small talk. I'm not good at group situations. I get very intimidated by crowds. Mm -hmm. But one-on-one, I can always say to someone, um, what have you been reading lately? What's your favorite book? And if they say, oh, I don't read or I haven't read since high school, then that's that's an easy next question. Why don't you read? What was the last book you liked? Was there a book a teacher gave you that you liked? Was there a book that made you stop reading? And it's been an entry point for me whenever I feel like I can't talk to someone. I always have that, even for non-readers or even for people who don't read a lot. I've always felt that there is a way to connect there because the why is what's interesting to me. Absolutely. You you are a woman after my own heart, for sure. There was not a moment of that I didn't relate to. <laughs> There's something just so satisfying about a one-on-one conversation, just really getting to know the deepest parts of another person. And often that is the media we consume. And myself being a book lover, there's just been so much joy in interviewing people about their all-time favorites. And so I'm happy I found my podcast twin and that we're both, you know, doing the work and asking these questions. It's so great. And I love talking to you and I love listening to your show. I think your podcast is just wonderful. And it's it's so fun to hear other people asking the same things and and listening to the way you question and, and um, comparing it to, I would have asked this and I'm so glad that you asked it that way because that's a, it's just great. I love learning from you and I love learning from your guests. I'm so happy that we found each other. And if you're a listener of Julie's podcast or a listener of mine and haven't heard the others, I'm sure you'll find a lot to love in both of our shows. We ask a lot of similar questions, but we're two different hosts and we have two different styles and uh, two different attitudes towards books. We come from different backgrounds, have different life experiences, and we bring all of that to the table. So you're not getting any repeat content with us. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, Julie, before we jump into talking a little bit about this book, um, when you introduce yourself, I just have to ask, how is it having four children during a pandemic? <laughs> well, the the thing for us is we have been homeschoolers for a long time. Um, the kids have kind of gone various ways in school, and I'm used to homeschooling. Um, so it wasn't the massive adjustment that it was for a lot of parents. Um it's still not a lot of people say to me all the time, I don't know how you've been doing this all these years. And I have to keep saying this is not homeschooling. What parents are doing now is not at all what homeschooling is like, because our homeschool life has always been out and about and um, being out in the world and field trips and museums and constant trips to libraries and bookstores. And and it was a, always a very, very active, very social life. And we don't have that now. So we're as miserable as everyone else. But the the, <laughs> the bigger um, point of it, I think, is that um, the worry, I think, is so tremendous. And I find that exhausting. And every parent I know is exhausted because 
it, it's just all you think about, you know, I, and I'm a I'm a sandwich generation person in that I have you know elderly parents and I have my children and it's all I think mm-hmm. about is how can how is everyone is everyone being safe how can I take care of them and a lot of the times I can't and we just have to hope for the best and so you know it it sucks <laughs> just this the the answer to this question for everyone I think is being an anything in a pandemic year sucks identify with you there. <laughs> I, I'm not a parent, not yet, but I'm a healthcare worker. And so I always say, you know, being a healthcare worker in a pandemic really sucks. And like you said, you could put anything in that blank. Mm-hmm. It just sucks. <laughs> yes, right. Distance yourselves, wear your masks and stay safe, especially if you're in the <laughs> United States. Just take care of everybody and yourselves. <laughs> yes. The more you know from Julie and Malavika. <laughs> anyway, back to the books. <laughs> um, so our book today, I, I was not expecting this choice from you at all. Um, our book today is Howard's End by E.M. Forster. And um, for everybody listening, this is a book I had heard of. Um, I've certainly heard of Ian e. Forster. I've read a little of his work before, which I'll get to, but this book itself, I had never pictured reading. It's just not my usual time period. It's not my usual genre. And so I was thinking, okay, this is this is what the podcast is all about. It's me getting outside my own literary comfort zone and picking up books I otherwise wouldn't have picked up at the library. And I'll tell everyone in advance, I am grateful for picking this up. This was a very interesting read. And I hope you all find it just as interesting as the two of us find it. Oh, I, it's just so nice to hear. I'm always nervous when I give this book to people. And I do give it away a lot. That's what I was going to ask you and table that. I need to know like how people react to this recommendation. But essentially, before we jump in um, to the book, I want to give you a bit of a summary for everybody listening at home. So essentially, in E.M. Forster's Howard's End, this is a detailed exploration of three different families. We have the Wilcoxes, the Schlegels, and the Basts. E.M. Forster shows us the extent of class division in turn-of-the-century England, Um, And he reflects on how morals and propriety are really are relative and it all depends on how much money you have. So (laughs) that is my very, um, very biased little summary there. There's a lot more to this book than that, but that was my overall takeaway message, which we'll elaborate on. Um, But Julie, I just have to hear from you. Um, When did you first discover this book? I actually have a funny history with this book. So after I graduated college, I backpacked through Europe for four months by myself. And when I got to Paris, you're not going to believe this because this was a long time ago. This was 1992. And my budget was $30 a day, which in most countries was plenty of money for, and that was for my lodging and food and whatever activities I wanted to do. And at the time that was plenty of money. And then I got to Paris and literally every day I had to decide if I wanted to eat or do something. And, um, you know, if I wanted to go to a museum, I just didn't eat that day. And that was just the way it was. I didn't have the budget for it. So I stayed in hostels and I would sneak an extra roll out in my backpack and go to a museum. And that was all I had that day, which was fine. I mean, I, you know, I love that. It was a fantastic time. Um, But a a bout of loneliness hit me as I was going through Paris. And I was sad that I couldn't really enjoy the city the way I had always envisioned enjoying the city. And so I was kind of wandering around. 
feeling sort of morose and lonely. And I kept seeing this poster, this movie poster with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins. And I kept thinking, gosh, and it was hot outside. That's the other thing. It was a really hot summer. And I just wanted to go and watch a movie and and I I couldn't spend the money. But I saw that poster everywhere, and I kept thinking, I cannot wait to, when I get home, this is going to be the first movie I saw it. And I, I, I had such affection for it just based on the poster, and I knew nothing about it. So when I eventually got home back to the States, I saw the movie and fell wildly in love with it. And I think it is a beautiful movie. And then immediately went and found the book. And as always happens, there's so much more to the book than the movie. And and my love of the movie is undimmed. I will rewatch the movie as often as I rewatch the book because I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, but of course, I love the book more. And for some reason, it just became the book that I kept returning to both as comfort and as challenge. It's to me, it's very much a warm blankie of a book in that when I am sad or when I am in a reading slump or when I don't have the energy to really take on something new, this is the book I will turn to. But also when I am working on something and I want an example of how to plot well or how to how to create a turn of phrase that communicates several things, I will also turn to this book for that. I frequently will pick it up and think, I want to get back to that passage where Margaret talks about this or that, and and I will go to it just for Forrester's writing skill to learn something there. That is so, so much there I want to unpack. But <laughs> the first thing is like, how rare is that, that a comfort read also serves as a, a literary example? I feel like the two are usually never one and the same, mm-hmm. but that, that's a rare find of a book that provides you both comfort as well as, like you said, comfort and challenge. So that's such an interesting concept. I feel like usually people talk about one or the other, but never really both in one book. And I think that's why it has sustained for so long in my life and why I reread it so often, because I have a lot of books that are nothing but comfort. And that's fine, too. I'm all for an easy, comfortable read. And I'm all for a really difficult challenge. But this one just gets reread most often because it's both to me. That makes a lot of sense. And then additionally, you talk about, you know, backpacking through Europe, which despite your stringent budget still sounds absolutely glamorous and marvelous. And I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) It was very fun. It's very similar to an experience I had, which it's so funny how, you know, Facebook gives you the little the memory updates. So apparently, five years ago to the day, my husband, my now husband and I were in Ireland And we had taken a little weekend trip over to London and the two of us budgeted almost nothing for this trip. And while we were never really choosing between, you know, we didn't have $30 a day. I mean, it was only five years ago, but it was still often choosing Mm -hmm. between, do we want to eat decent food or do we want to actually see things to see? And we like, we didn't get to go inside Westminster Abbey. We just kind of looked at it and things like that. (laughs) And we also smuggled food out of our hostel. They had like a cold cut bar and we just like, I had a Tupperware and I just like smashed like slices of ham into a Tupperware. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because we went to Paris, my husband and I, 
um, took our kids and we went to Paris on our 25th anniversary. And I, proverbial kid in the candy store, I was going, I'm going to buy a croissant. I'm going to buy this. I'm going, like, I just walked in and my husband kept saying, haven't you been to Paris? And I went, nope, not like this. Not when I actually could buy things. (laughs) And it was magical. It was exactly what you want Paris to be. (laughs) And it's so funny because my husband talks about going back to London and doing exactly the same thing. He's like, I want to go to London. I want to actually eat like full meals and I want to see things. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. You'll get there. It's a different experience. That was the other odd thing for me was that when I was there by myself, um, I was very, very cautious woman traveling, traveling alone. And I saw almost nothing of Paris at night. And I could not get over when we went a couple of years ago. I just couldn't get over how beautiful it's called the city of lights. And I just, all I wanted to do was walk around all night and it really is, but I I just couldn't see that when I was traveling mm-hmm. by myself because I just never felt quite safe enough to uh, walk around by myself. So it's, it's really a much more magical experience when you have a little bit of money and confidence and maybe a little, or a little smarter as well. <laughs> That's true. That's definitely true. But you're making me, we, my husband and I were supposed to go on our honeymoon. We were supposed to go to Paris and the pandemic happened. So mm. got our fingers crossed for some time in the future. <laughs> oh, I've got my fingers crossed for you. It's all I think about every day. I think about where I want to travel. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Um, but anyway, returning back to Howard's end, Um, so you say you reread this all the time. How often would you say you reread it? And then like, how has your opinion of the book changed over time? I, um, well, easily once a year, sometimes twice a year. I tend to go for it in January, I've noticed, which I can't exactly explain why. Um, it's just kind of, it tends to be my first book of the year. And I have felt everything about this book. I have been in phases of my life where I think it is romantic and this the uh, when i was very young that was what i thought and i've thought it was tragic and the saddest thing i ever read and this time rereading it to speak with you all i could think about was economics and countries moving forward and who gets to rule the country mm-hmm. moving forward and of course reading it in 2020 is a completely different experience Right. Absolutely. It's so hard to put any piece of literature, like reading anything now without having the context of 2020. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, I was speaking to another guest. We talked about uh, Quiet by Susan Cain about being an introvert. And we're like, we can't talk about this and not talk about being isolated due to COVID. Like these mm-hmm. things just come up naturally when you think about books. And with this one, that idea of, you know, the haves and have nots, like who gets to decide how a country is run, who gets to decide what social morals are, like how much mm-hmm. does money play a role in that? You ask all those questions reading this book for sure. And I picked up on all of that, that all of those things as well. Yes. So um, you've reread this a number of times. So I'm doing the math in my head. 1992, you've read this at least <laughs> once a year. Like, that's a lot of reads. That's a lot of years. <laughs> And would you say that, um, do you feel kinder towards any different characters in particular, the older you've gotten? Has that changed for you? I get more compassionate every time I read it for everyone. Um, 
have definitely gone through phases where every one of them irritated me. And I've gone mm-hmm. through phases where um, I read it and I, I have a favorite character each time. Margaret's always been my favorite. The mm-hmm. Basically the main character, Margaret Schlegel. She's always been, I think, most similar to me personality wise. And, and um, I think we're kind of intended to sympathize with her as the reader anyway. But as I grow older, I feel such compassion, even for the ones who are obnoxious or mm-hmm. stuck in their way. You know, um, Henry's son, Charles, mm-hmm. you know, he's the terrible version of Henry. He's the he's the terrible version of capitalism. He's what's he's what happens when we let colonialists just go without taking care to teach them compassion and kindness. And now I read it and I feel very sympathetic toward him. He sort of doesn't have a choice. He was told in his life that it's all about gathering wealth and gathering prestige and esteem and wasn't really given the tools for doing that except for inheriting it and or taking it from others. And, you know, he has a very sad end. And I just have tremendous, now I just have tremendous sympathy for him. He had as little shot at success as Leonard Bass did. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I find it so interesting in this book. And one of the main things that stood out to me about this book is this is not a very long book. And even with the limited number of pages, I think my edition's, you know, under 300 pages. And even with that limited number of pages, what we get is, even if they aren't exactly lovable, all these characters, they're all very nuanced they all show mm. some sort of change. They all have, you know, significant arcs. Like it's hard to balance that number of characters and still give them all a storyline and give them all a purpose in this world. And I have my hats off to Ian Forster for that. Right. And I, I agree with you. And they're all interesting, even when they're, you know, Dolly, she's mm-hmm. silly and sort of ridiculous, but she keeps the plot going and she's an interesting person. She's an interesting character and she's a great foil for Margaret. And so, and she's a relatively small character. And so I agree with you. He's, he's so good at creating these people who, you know, if you got a book about even the smallest character, it would be a really fascinating story. Absolutely. And you mentioned Dolly being a foil for Margaret. And I think another way you can look at this is if you think about social class, Dolly's also kind of an interesting comparison to Jackie, because mm-hmm. in that essence, you have two characters that may not have a lot of, you know, intellectual substance, but one character has a considerably more prestige because of, you know, the class she's been born into, a certain amount more of respectability, a lack of hard times. And we see how two essentially similar characters intellectually just get two different ends in society. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. Jackie is the poor version of Dolly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And it, it gets to, it goes to show you. And one of the big messages here is that, you know, all the qualities in of human nature, like there are no purely good people and bad people. It's also, you have to look at the circumstances they come from. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And going into that a little bit, um, I want to know, you've reread this a number of times and you say you give this book out pretty freely. How do (laughs) other people react when you tell them this is your favorite? Have any of them read it themselves? 
Oh, I I don't know if anybody's actually read it. <laughs> I think people get sort of intimidated by this book. You know, it looks like a book that you're assigned in school and it looks mm-hmm. um, Victorian and it looks like it's going to be about manners, but not as funny as Jane Austen. And I, I think I think people feel like it's going to be homework and not a great story. And so what I frequently do, and and that's why I collect this book anyway. Um, whenever I go to a bookstore, I always look and see if they have new or used copies of it. And I'll, I grab whatever I can. And I intentionally do that for myself. I, I do like to have pretty copies of it, but also because when I'm talking to people about books and they say they haven't read it, I love to hand it over and go, you know what? I have a spare right here, which <laughs> probably makes people just hate me, but I do it anyway. And and what I always tell people is watch the movie first, which I is so against <laughs> my my personal life philosophy, which is that the book is always better. But I just think this movie is a great entry to this book if you are intimidated by it. And there's something about this book that I think intimidates a lot of people. Like a lot of people won't read Dickens because it just looks mm-hmm. huge and terrifying. And and I'm that way. My book of that way is um, Anna Karenina, which <laughs> I, I know a lot of people love Anna Karenina, but for some reason, every time I look at it, I think, oh God, no, that's hard to read. And it's a, you know, it's just too much for me. And I know that's not true. I know I would love it if I just sat down and read it. But with this mm-hmm. one, I always say start with the movie because you can't help but love that the actors are brilliant. It's so perfectly cast and it gives you a great overview of the story. And then it's very, very easy to slide right into the book from there because you know what's going on. And and it's a really fair portrayal of each of the characters and s- without ruining mm-hmm. what you might imagine in the in the book. So I, I guess that's a long answer to I don't think people generally like it when I hand the book over, but I always preface it with, OK, I'm giving you permission to watch the movie first. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't think that's bad advice. And I think that's advice that can carry over to basically any book that intimidates you, especially when you're talking about older books. So like British literature just tends to intimidate. I mean, we mentioned Dickens. Mm -hmm. Um, The example I give is uh, my husband knew I really liked Pride and Prejudice. And I know you did an episode on Pride and Prejudice, so I (laughs) wanted to bring it in. Um, But I've always loved Pride and Prejudice. My husband's mother, it's her favorite book. Like Pride and Prejudice has always been in his life, but he had never read the book. And then he went to a stage version of me and he's like, I can't tell what's going on at all. And then he tried Mm. to read some of it and he's like, I can't tell what's going on here. And then we just sat down and watched a movie version. And he's like, okay, I could see myself actually reading this book now because at least now I have a context for it. It's like, as long as you get kind of the hard parts of like major plot lines out of the way, then you can focus on the actual language. There's not that dual pressure to get both the story and the language out of a difficult book. Exactly. I think you've hit it. Exactly. And this book, honestly, I will admit, so we mentioned British literature. I am not a British literature fan, especially older British literature. I have like a few exceptions. I like Jane Austen books. Um, I abhor Charles Dickens. I can't stand anything he's written. Not <laughs> wow. for me. 
Okay. Just, just not, not for me. <laughs> but then um, I tend to kind of, and then they're, they're the Brontes. I find Jane Eyre kind of meh. Like mm-hmm. I, I've just never really been into older British literature. I think it was probably an act of rebellion against my mother. And that was her favorite type of book. But <laughs> uh-huh. interesting. She's probably listening. Hi, mom. Hi, mom. But- <laughs> <laughs> mom, read Howard's End. You're going to love it. <laughs> I think mom would really like this, actually. But um, this book, essentially, I had a really hard time kind of placing this in time because somehow I kind of group all British literature in around Jane Austen's time uh-huh. when this is literally like 100 years later. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and the the good news is like we are brought into 100 years later because there's so much that happens in this book that literally could not happen in Jane Austen's time at all. Right. Like not only cars and things, but just the interactions we actually see between social classes. Like we do not see that in anything in Jane Austen's mm. time. Like it's one class, it's that small microcosm. And here it's kind of a broader reality. We're starting to see the world broaden out a little bit more. And that's really interesting. Yes. And you know, um, just yesterday I read an article that um, I, there's a kerfluffle going on in England right now, because evidently there was a commercial with a black family celebrating mm-hmm. Christmas and a bunch. Of, have you heard of this? I did. Yes. I heard of the same words, I believe. Yeah. And a bunch of white people went crazy because it doesn't represent quote unquote true Britain. And all I could think was, my God, we are still it. We're still talking about this. They are still having the same arguments that the Schlegels and Wilcoxes are having in Howard's End, which is who gets to be British? Who gets to mm-hmm. who gets to claim this? And it's so horrible to me and pisses me off, but it's also just fascinating. We just we can't learn. Absolutely. And you can extrapolate this to the United States too. I recall, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, there was a a very harmless Cheerios commercial Mm -hmm. and the Cheerios commercial showed a biracial family and everyone made a big stink about it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, some families are just interracial. You have to live with it. Yeah. And well, we can't get into spoilers, but I do think that the conclusion that Ian Forrester seemed to come to was you can scream all you want, but the people the people who inherit Howard's Inn and the people who eventually are going to inherit England and every country are going to be a blend of what you think is correct and what you think is incorrect. And that's just the way it mm-hmm. is. That's the way of the world. And it's a very specific story of wealthy white English people, but it's a very broad story of people fighting to hang on to things and people fighting their fears. And that's why I think it, it, even though it is a very specific time and place, it really keeps, continues to appeal to me because we are still having these same arguments here in the States. And I think in a lot of places in the world. It's, it's interesting you bring up how timeless this book really is. And this book actually resonates for a lot of other writers. The one example I found when looking into this is uh, Zadie Smith, when she wrote her novel On Beauty mm-hmm. about 15 years ago, that book was actually an homage to Howard's End. Um, and it starred an interracial family. It was that kind of, you know, pushing forward into the new Britain right. in a way. Right. She even named the main character Howard. I haven't read this book yet, but I intend to. 
And I just thought that was a really interesting way of pushing forth this idea because the main theme in the end here is time just marches on. It just keeps going and you can be left behind or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And so getting into this book, you mentioned spoilers. I want to tell everybody (laughs) listening here, you think a book is like 100 years old and there won't be any spoilers, or you think this book is going to be like boring and British and there's nothing interesting to spoil. This book has spoilers. It really does. I was shocked so many times reading this. And there were times I, I I listened to this book actually on audiobook. So I have a bit of a lengthy commute. And so I played this mm. on audiobook. And there were times I'm just on the road. And then I just like blink a few seconds. And I have to keep driving. But I'm like, what just happened? Like, mm. I have never listened to this on audio in all my years of loving this book. Tell me, what is it like? Who's the, do you know who the narrator is? I don't, but she's like a very British lady. Her accent is very posh. Um, I so this was interesting for me because when when you recommended this, I was, you know, my 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 sort of misgivings about British literature. It's also been so long since I've read anything quite this old just for fun. And so I have a print copy that I got from the library and I started reading it and I got to a point where my eyes were starting to glaze over. And I'm like, I think I'm just tired, but the audiobook really did it for me. The story just came alive as soon as I listened to it. And really, I think what it did is the pacing worked for me. Um, you're able to sort of listen to the rhythm of the language and appreciate it, but there was a lot of personality brought to some of the voices. I thought that was really good. Um, it was just very enjoyable on audiobook. And I, I recommend that if you if you like me are intimidated by older books, like find an audiobook. Like we've recommended, you know, try the movie out. And now here's my second recommendation is try an audiobook. They they do add like a new spin and a little bit of flavor to something that just might not be hitting for you trying to read it on paper. I agree. And a and a good audio actor is just golden. Like they can just make a story come to life. So that is a great Mm -hmm. recommendation. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I'm going to look for this on audio because that never even, I never even thought of doing that. Yeah. They just had it at the library um, just for download. And I'm like, all right, I'll try this out, get some passive, you know, reading done while I drive. And it was great. Mm. We've talked about spoilers here. We've talked about, we've talked (laughs) a little about the characters here, but I, I was wondering, you know, what to say about these characters. And one of the messages here of Howard's End is that the the family, the, the story is really about this house, this beautiful house. And in that way, this book is not really about the characters. It's about the setting that Ian Forster portrays and about this context in time. So this was written about 1910. It was one of Ian Forster's earlier novels. It was just a really interesting exploration of this sort of turn of century time. We've got the modernizing of England. We've got the whiffs of women's suffrage going on. We've got motor cars and smoke and urbanization is just starting. But then we have the the pastoral landscape of Howard's End as a juxtaposition. And the setting of this book is really quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's very much part of the appeal for me. That's that's the comfort blankie appeal to it for Mm -hmm. for me um, is I have this vision of this home in in my mind and it's stuffed to the gills with books and they drink tea and discuss books and Mm -hmm. oh my goodness it just sounds so perfect and idyllic and 
you know, the, the field of hay next to them. It just, oh, I can't imagine anything better. <laughs> it, it, it's really got that. Yeah. She, we talk about Mrs. Wilcox, you know, working in her garden and there's just this beautiful scene and even London, London comes alive. It seems so fun mm-hmm. and vibrant. The like, you know, the life of going to symphonies and, you know, talking with people about intellectual topics. If you're a book nerd, you'll, you'll find your little nuggets to enjoy here. That was really fun. Oh yes, definitely. And then another thing I wanted to bring in sort of switching gears a little bit is talking about Ian Forster himself. And before we get to him, um, Julie, had you read any of his other books? Have you delved into sort of his, you know, bibliography? I have. I'm, um, I've read quite a few of his books and I have several biographies of him um, that I actually haven't read. I just buy them because I get compulsive when I see anything about him. <laughs> but I know a bit about his history and he also has a quite vast um, catalog of literary criticism and has written nonfiction about writing and about um, writing fiction. And so he, he was very prolific. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I, I know a bit about him, but I'm I'm really eager to hear what you've dug up. Yeah. So one of the things that really stood out to me about Ian Forster, I mean, some of his other books I had heard of, A Room with a View, A Passage to India, really my only, only experience with Ian Forster is I think 10 years ago, I tried to read A Passage for Passage for India, mm-hmm. Passage to India. But 10 years ago, I was about 15 and it bored me to tears. So <laughs> uh-huh. I'll likely give it another shot. My mom told me it's a beautiful book. Now with the knowledge I know of it being essentially an example of Orientalist fiction, mm-hmm. you know, a white person's gaze on the colonial landscape, you take this all with a grain of salt, but I'm going to give it another go, founding that I really did enjoy this Ian Forster novel. Mm-hmm. But Thinking about him particularly as a writer, he's a really interesting character. So one of the things he brings into this novel is some of the ideas of the quote unquote Bloomsbury group that he was part of, you know, Mm -hmm. his sort of circle of intellectuals and writers. And did you know that the Schlegel sisters were based on Virginia Woolf and her sister? No, were they really? I I mean, according to Wikipedia and a couple other encyclopedias, but... (laughs) There is uh, some, because they were in similar literary circles, and there's an idea that the Schlegel sisters are based on the two of them, Ver- Vanessa and Virginia. And I don't know how true that is, but I want to believe. <laughs> that is so interesting. It really is, because then you you think of, you know, what would Margaret write if she was out in the world? And you think of her turning into someone like Virginia Woolf, which is interesting, but she does have a certain amount of melancholy to her. So mm-hmm. not... I'm not inconceivable, Yeah, but it was really exciting to see because one of the interesting things about this book is just how much focus there is on our two female leads, the Schlegel sisters. We have Margaret and Helen who are distinct, well-rounded characters. And I think that was pretty unusual for Forster's time to write such nuanced female characters. Mm-hmm. Right. And to have them be, well, Margaret, the, the moral center of the entire mm-hmm. story. You know, that even um, that she wasn't just carping off from the side the way female characters are so frequently um, reduced to, but that she's very much the moral and ethical center. And the one who struggles with the morals and ethics of the story, I think, is so Mm -hmm. interesting. 
she really is a liaison in many ways between, you know, we have our three families, the very upper class privileged Wilcoxes who have made their money off of colonialism, who are more mm-hmm. secure in their standing. And then sort of a liaison to the best who are lower class England. They are working class struggling people. And the Schlegels kind of represent this burgeoning middle class, this liberal idea and sort of the follies that can come with that class because, you know, they're comfortable. They try to elevate the best. They're well-meaning, but a lot of their initiatives are short-sighted. Mm-hmm. And I think by having those flaws in those characters, it really made them interesting. Right. Right. And I just, to, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring it back to politics again. You're probably going to want to <laughs> cut this, but I couldn't help think this. I thought reading it in 2020, Margaret really represented the sort of white liberal woman of 2020 in that she's got all these great ideas of how we can help and how we can do things while standing on her privilege the entire time. And who does she marry? But the Mm -hmm. industrialist who's, you know, cannibalizing another continent Mm-hmm. And arguing and arguing and arguing with him, but she still married him. And I kept thinking as I was reading it, gosh, you 55% of white women, we know who you voted for. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I am not cutting that because I had that literally written down in my notes like 55%. Right. <laughs> right. And absolutely, her ideas are great. And I love that she struggles with things, but she doesn't entirely get it right, does she? No, she doesn't. And I think that makes her all the more real. Mm -hmm. We don't have this sort of complete in the right character. None of these characters really are, you know, true good. They all have, you know, nuance to them. They all have darkness in them. And that makes these real people. I am impressed with Forrester's ability, like I said, to bring this many characters to life and give them this much nuance. Yeah. Um, And then getting back to Forrester himself, you know, adding to, you know, his dimensions, he was... Um, an out, at least out for his time period, an out gay man, um, never married a woman, didn't start, you know, that kind of a relationship, but was well known in his circles for being an out gay man. Um, And then another fun thing is, did you know he was nominated for the Nobel Prize 16 times and never won? What? No, I didn't. No kidding. (laughs) 16 times. I would be so frustrated. Yeah, eventually you start going, okay, now they're just messing with me. Right. And they only give it to a living writer. And he lived a long, long time. But you could tell he's probably getting to a certain age and he's like, come on. Right. Right. (laughs) He probably thinks, oh, it's the time of year where they're going to nominate me again for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But I just thought that was so funny. And so I didn't have like a full biography prepared of him or anything, but I just like to gather up a few facts and present them Mm, and laugh a little. it is interesting delving into these writers, especially when they've been dead for so long. You want to you wanna bring them back to life a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, so another thing with this book, if I'm going to levy any criticisms here, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't fall in love with Howard's End. In the end, this isn't the type of book I personally would fall in love with. I was definitely pleasantly surprised. But I think in the end, some aspects of the writing style to me did feel a little uneven. And I'll give you an example. Okay. So. Forster, I don't have a written example, but essentially Forster 
you know, he spends a lot of time delving into thoughts, into feelings, into descriptions. I think he's a master of character interiority. So we have the section that comes to mind for me is Margaret deciding whether or not she loves Mr. Wilcox. And she thinks about this and she starts weighing, you know, what does love really mean? And what does it mean to love versus like, it's all very intellectual and very telling about this character, but very well rendered. I loved that about this. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of that introspection. But then on the flip side, when it comes to like writing plot points, like you'll be going through this chapter and then all of a sudden, and then they died at the end. Like things like that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and maybe it was hard for me driving and listening to that. And then they're like, and now dead. And I'm like, what? <laughs> right. I can see that. I, I don't know if the, some readers might find that very thrilling, and in some ways it is. But for me, I was wondering, what did I miss? What did I miss? <laughs> well, my husband and I have this joke. Um, that we have very different reading and movie-watching styles. And if mm -hmm. I watch something without him, and, and he, if he asks me if I liked it, and I'll say, I loved it, and he'll go... Oh, so it's all about characters. And then if mm -hmm. he or if I say, no, I didn't like it, but you would have liked it. And he says, oh, so it's about plot. <laughs> and <laughs> so we kind of have this joke that I am all about. I just want to know what people are thinking. And mm -hmm. what they did is never as interesting as why the hell would you do that? Or what made you think that was OK? That's always so fascinating to me. So I think that's why I... I I see your criticism. I think the reason I can skip over it so easily is because my next question is always, wait, why? Why did that? Ha why did you do that? And mm -hmm. what were we thinking? That's so and there's a lot of thinking in this book a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. People do a lot more thinking than doing in this book, except in very pivotal moments <laughs> that just shock you because no one's done anything for 30 pages. <laughs> Yes. And then they think about what they did. Poor Leonard Bast. He thinks for a really long time about that big mistake he made. Poor guy. Oh, my gosh. Poor Leonard Bast. I think that that's a moral of a story. I don't want to delve into him too much, but poor Leonard. Poor Leonard. <laughs> I felt for him. Yeah. But yeah. I think this really is, if you like a character-driven novel, which I, I certainly do, and that's why I liked a lot of this book, I think you'll find a lot to love in Howard's End. I think plot-wise, this book does move at a very interesting pace because, you know, for so long, not much is happening and then things speed up very quickly. And maybe that kind of uneven pacing works for you. I know there's a lot of readers that that works for. For me, I think it was a bit of a mixed bag, mm -hmm. but I think it's just in part of the stylistic choice, which I respect. I love so much that you share on your podcast your criticisms of it. I think that's so interesting. <laughs> I like to do it mm -hmm. because I I feel like, and it's really funny because I'll talk to guests about it and then they agree with what I'm saying and then I'm like, but why is this your favorite then? <laughs> <laughs> no shade at my guests. Maybe it's proof that I'm a good persuasive person. Who knows? Well, I, I have such a I have such a deep affection for this book that there is almost nothing you could say to me. That <laughs> so I can take it. I can take any criticisms because I will still go, yeah, that's that's fine. You can think what you want. It's still the best book ever written. <laughs> I respect that a lot. And so, you know, coming to a close here, I know if you love a book so much, it's probably really hard to think of other books along similar veins. But if you had to pick, you know, one book for further reading, if you like Howard's End, what's a book you would pick? Well, 
Uh, you already mentioned On Beauty, which I have read and I did really like. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't love, I do like Zadie Smith a lot, um, but I didn't love, love that one. But I think because of my history with Howard's End, I was expecting to dive in. And I actually kind of wish I hadn't read that it was meant to be mm-hmm. an homage to Howard's End because I think I would have really liked it otherwise. Mm-hmm. But it is a very, very good book. And the other one, I, a really modern take that I would recommend is a book called One Day by David Nichols, which is um, mm-hmm. not really based on Howard's End, but it references Howard's End a lot. And there was a movie of that one too with Anne Hathaway, which I didn't love, but it's the same idea. Very flawed people and they meet one day and then the same, they meet again the next year on the same day. It's kind of a good sort of tragic love story. And there is a plot point that hinges on her being a big fan of Howard's End. So I I am always tickled when I come across books that mention Howard's End. And people frequently will say, you got to read this book because the main character's favorite book is Howard's End. And so (laughs) I've come across a lot of modern books where people have recommended because they know that whenever Howard's End is mentioned, they they tell me about it, which I always love. That's so interesting because to me, like I had heard of this book in passing, but I've never heard anybody mention it before you did. Like now it's going to be, I don't know what that effect is called. You hear Mm -hmm. one thing one where, and then you hear it everywhere forever. Like that's what it's going to be like. Right. Well, and we're friends now. So you're going to hear me talk about it all the time. Every time I talk to you, I will find a way to bring it up. That's just how I work. I expect, I'm expecting that now. I'm excited. But coming over to me, so for me, like not reading a lot of British literature, the examples I came up with to kind of go along with this book in a way, both of them are American. So it automatically takes a bit of a different spin, but they're from similar time periods. And I'm going to present two books, one that I enjoyed and one that I didn't enjoy, but have stylistic similarities. And maybe mm-hmm. you like one or the other. I don't know. But one of these books is called The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Mm-hmm. And The Magnificent Ambersons is noteworthy because it was the second book ever to win the Pulitzer Prize. So I believe it was in 1919. So this book is written a few years after Howard's End, but it's a very similar setting. We are in America and we're seeing sort of the transition from, you know, your more upper class, more rural ruling family ideas, noble people, and then going into a rapidly industrializing society. And we see sort of the decay of one of America's quote unquote great families in favor of new money. So it's that old money, new money conflict. Um, Mm -hmm. What kind of makes this book a little more sour than something like Howard's End is instead of time marching on, you can tell Booth Targenton really wants to turn back the clock. It's pretty obvious. Mm. And and you learn more about, if you delve into him, you learn more about his politics. He had to run as a congressman, things like that. It all kind of makes sense. He's one of those Pulitzer Prize winners, actually. If you want to throw out a fun fact here, only about three writers have won the Pulitzer Prize twice. He's actually one of them, but nobody's ever heard of him. Mm, that's interesting. What's his other one? Um, Alice Adams, which came a couple years oh, later. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the other writers to win twice, I believe one was Faulkner and the other was um, John Updike. So mm, okay. um, a little more notoriety there. Mm-hmm. But Is so that, that is the Magnificent Ambersons, is that the one you liked or disliked? Disliked. But the okay. one I liked, it's very interesting because the, the one I liked that goes along with this is actually the third book ever to win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> 
And this is um, Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Oh, good one. Yeah. Which I think has a lot of interesting ideas here um, that sort of tie into Howard's end. The tone of Age of Innocence is very different. There is a cynicism in the tone of Age of Innocence. Um, You can tell Edith Wharton has a lot of sarcasm in her writing that she kind of bubbles below the surface, which I enjoy. She has a lot Mm -hmm. of snark to her. Um, But you also see a very similar setting. You see New York City kind of told in similar ways to London of this time, you know, rapidly changing, a lot happening in America at that time. And then we're also shown some interpersonal dynamics. You see like an inappropriate love story, which ties into Howard's end, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of introspection. There's just a lot of smaller thematic things. It's less straightforward than The Magnificent Ambersons. In my opinion, it's also a much better book. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I would definitely check out either of those um, for people who have read Howard's end and enjoy Howard's end. You'll probably find something to like in either of these two books. Gosh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I haven't read Edith Wharton in ages, and now I am just dying to pick that one up again. I'm going to do that. It's a little more, I'd say it's a harder read than Howard's End. Maybe this is another one I'm going to find on audiobook because it might be Mm -hmm, a little easier on the ears. But um, I think there's just a lot of really interesting commentary in Age of Innocence that reminds me a lot of the commentary in Howard's End. You know, it's so funny because particularly with the podcast, I've been introduced to a lot of literature and genres that I don't normally gravitate to, in in particular fantasy. And I've just never Mm -hmm. had an interest in fantasy, just kind of leaves me cold in general. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know why. I don't really have an explanation for that, except that dragons are not interesting to me in general. (laughs) And yet these books like Edith Wharton books and like Howard Zinn and and Jane Austen, to me, that's the kind of fantasy that I will go for every Mm -hmm. time. The bustles and the, (laughs) you know, pearls and tea time and dress for dinner and uh, manners and the subtleties of a look across a room. It's, to me, it's very foreign and interesting and I'm so fascinated by all of it. And I would so much rather read that type of story than, you know, um, I don't know, dragons and fairies and elves and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's all just a form of escapism. And we Mm -hmm. all have our own fantasy elements that just come alive to us. And for some of us, it's, um, you know, dragons and fairies. For some of us, it's agency romance and for others of us, it's totally different. I like, you know, Southern sad fiction about small, sad towns. So <laughs> as I learned. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I want to bring in before we close off today is literally right before we logged in, I found out a fun fact that I had to share with you. Okay. Um, so they made a Howard's End miniseries a couple of years ago. I don't know if you saw it. I did. What did you think of that miniseries? I liked it. I um, If you happen to hear my podcast episode um, with Jamie Morimoto, she talked about Pride and Prejudice, and we actually discussed the Pride and Prejudice movies. And she had such an interesting take on it because her favorite, she's obsessed with Pride and Prejudice, and her favorite version of the movie is the one with Keira Knightley, mm-hmm. which I dislike. And I like the PBS miniseries with Colin Firth. And her mm-hmm. take on it was books are not necessarily better when you get every single line onto film. 
Mm. And sometimes, and so I, I have, until she said that I was not able to place why I like the movie version of Howard's better so much Howard's end better than the um, miniseries. And I liked the miniseries, but I didn't love it the way I love the movie. And I think she hit the nail on the head because every, I, I think every line was in the miniseries, which mm-hmm. is fine for me. Um, because I was practically quoting along as I watched it, <laughs> but I, I don't think it necessarily makes for good watching. It makes for great reading, mm-hmm. but I didn't think it made for great watching. Whereas the um, theatrical version, the one with Anthony Hopkins, I think makes for brilliant watching because they got the salient parts. They got the plot, I guess, is the point. Mm -hmm. They got all the points that you're talking about, the few points, plot points that there are. (laughs) (laughs) And um, not quite so much thinking and dwelling, which is what appeals to me so much in the book, but is not necessarily a great visual experience. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And the the reason I actually bring up the miniseries is, did you recognize the actor who played Henry Wilcox? Uh, no. He is the same actor that plays Darcy in the 2005 Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. What? <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? I am 100% serious. It is Matthew McFadden, who is um, 1995 Lake Scene Darcy. Oh, my God. Oh, not 1995. Sorry. 2005. 2005 Kira Knightley Darcy. I can't stand him as Darcy. (laughs) That is a controversy for another time. but (laughs) No kidding. But I thought he was a good Mr. Wilcox. That's so interesting. No, I never, I never put, I didn't put that together. That is really interesting. One he has a beard and then one he doesn't, so. Well, yeah, see, so I'm, if there are any superheroes in my midst, I'm very easy to fool because clearly all you need to do is put on glasses and I will not know that you're Superman. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to share that with you, especially knowing your opinions of the Pride and Prejudice movies. And I was so glad you brought them up at just that time. (laughs) I know, perfect. (laughs) We didn't put this, I promise. (laughs) But anyway, to wrap all this up, Julie, if we want to find more about you, if we want to find your podcast, how can we find you? My podcast is everywhere. It's called The Best Book Ever Podcast. And um, I have a website, juliewroteabook.com. And you can find me on Instagram. That's my favorite place to be is Instagram. I pretty much hate all other social media. So (laughs) you can find me on Instagram either at The Best Book Ever Podcast or at Julie Wrote a Book. And that's it. Julie, always a pleasure. And I was so happy to be on your show. So definitely check out that episode. And then I'm so happy to have you on my show. Malavika, it has been a delight. I'm delighted we found each other. I'm delighted to have a podcast twin. Thank you so much. And everyone listening, be sure to tune in to episodes of your favorite book every Thursday. And be sure to catch my episode on Julie's podcast. I talk about The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which is much sadder than Howard's End. So be prepared (laughs) for that. Thanks for listening, bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to all the books we discussed, please go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. 
You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie Wrote a Book. If you'd like to hear more from this week's guest, make sure to check out Malavika's podcast, the Your Favorite Book Podcast, and her delightful Instagram, at YFB Podcast. We've overlapped topics a couple of times, and it's really fun to listen to how we approach the same book or guest. For example, we've both hosted guests who chose A Song of Achilles, The Hating Game, and The Catcher in the Rye, and we've both hosted Damon Tivana and Jasmine Vias as guests. If you love my podcast, I know you'll love hers, so make sure you subscribe. That's all for this week. I'll be back next Monday with a new guest and a new book. Until then, I will see you at the library.